Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Citizen Sleeper, developed by Jump Over the Age and published by Fellow Traveler for Mac, Windows, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and S. It was released on May 5th of 2022, and we will be talking spoilers, so heads up if you are sensitive to that. This was one of my favorite games of 2022, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you here, Josh. Um, Thanks for playing it. Thanks for saying we should do a podcast on this one, because uh, I'm (laughs) sure you're aware, I agree. (laughs) Oh, for sure. This is a great game, definitely worthwhile. Uh, Very, I think, a fresh sort of game, too. Like, a, a lot of games, they're like, here's where your inspiration came from. But I feel like these mechanics were not something that I've seen in the video game space very much. Yeah, definitely sort of a tabletop adjacent set of mechanics, I would say. You know, you've got your dice, you've got your timers, uh, you can almost see the tokens being placed on the place uh, on the, the board uh, as you're playing. Um, but I think, to me, this was more of a game that came out in the slew of narrative excellence uh, that was 2022. You know, we had our Norcos, which, uh, you know, I think everyone's aware we liked. Um, mm-hmm. You had Pentiment, which neither of us have played, but both of us, I think, want to. Um Immortality, uh, Signalis, and of course, the game we're talking about now, Citizen Sleeper. A lot of great narrative games in 2022. Uh, yeah, uh, we have a podcast on Norco. Uh, definitely check that one out. That was a favorite game of 2022 for both me and Brian last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very solid. And I think um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, maybe you're sensing a trend here. Uh, it, discussing a capitalist uh, hyper-capitalist dystopia <laughs> we we have a type it seems but um no i think this game definitely does a lot that distinct you know makes it distinct from even all the other games that i mentioned just there and um you know earns it a place in that pantheon of great narrative experience that have come out in recent years but um maybe we should talk a little bit about uh the person who who made this game and its origins uh gareth damian martin uh, who goes by Jump Over the Age as a developer, also did In Other Waters, which I think you played a little bit of, right, Josh? That's right. Uh, I was kind of intrigued by the game's kind of UI-first exploration of mechanics. Um, it's a kind of like underwater discovery sort of game where you get little new instruments added on to what you can do. Uh, very stylistic, for sure, in what it's trying to do. Uh, very interesting game. Yeah, I never got to play that one, but I'm I'm definitely intrigued, especially you know given how much I like Citizen Sleeper. I think it's it's very natural that uh, I want to go back and explore a bit more of this developer's um, catalog. Um, you know, they're a very interesting person. I, I um, watched a great interview with them uh, with Austin Walker, one of my favorite critics or former critics. Uh, they're now in the the dev scene themselves. Um, but uh, the name of this game, as I found from an excerpt from the game's art book, uh, actually came from um, the concept of an idea about a spacer that could only wake up one day in a year due to a failing life support system and uh, eventually sort of snowballed into the idea we have now after they brought the idea of good friends in bad jobs into the, the equation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if good friends in bad jobs doesn't just summarize all of high school, I don't know what does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it definitely sort of like, it's a very strong like thesis for the game. You know, it's all very much about precarity and uh, working terrible jobs just to get by. And um, it really makes me, uh, one, I guess, thankful to not be in such a precarious situation. But it, it does like remind me of a time like, you know, shortly after school when you're like just trying to get established and, you know, you are a bit more on the razor's edge and um, mistakes can spell disaster, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. In this game, it's kind of amped up to 11, so to speak. Uh, The basic plot of this game is that you are an emulated consciousness. So someone uploaded their consciousness way back when, and you are one of the many, many copies um, who are fleeing to a distant space station. You're running away from your the mega corporation that you used to work for, uh, who quite literally owned your body when you were working for them. Uh, so you jump on a spacer uh, or some sort of transport, take some huge risks, there's a jailbreak, and you're the only one from the crew that makes it. And that's where the game starts. 
yeah, you basically find yourself on Erlen's Eye. It's sort of a semi-ruined space station that's very much in flux. It's home to uh, thousands of people trying to survive in this interstellar capitalist society. But it's also a place where there was formerly a revolution, and basically the uh, dock workers union, as I understand it, uh, the Havenage, um, like took over uh, the station. They ousted the um, sort of eminent uh, capitalist corporation that uh, formerly ran the space station, and now it's sort of uh, kind of a lawless, anarchical place with various factions sort of vying to establish uh, a, a sort of sense of order for all of the people that live there. Um, it's very interesting how all of these different factions play into each other, and you, as a newcomer, uh, of course, are sort of welcome to throw your lot in with any or none of the above. Yeah, this is a kind of, you know, future dystopia where the capitalistic megacorps are kind of the law um, and figuring out what to do with them. Um, But when the one corporation was kicked off of the spaceship, it sort of became a sort of a a space outside of that corporate law. So a lot of people who were fleeing from corporations for one reason or another, they started coming onto the space station and... Uh, in the game's lore, this actually caused some problems because, you know, the space station was built for so many people, um, and all of a sudden these new people are showing up not because, you know, they uh, agreed with Havenage's uh, goals or anything like that, but just because this was a space outside that corporate law. Yep. So at this point, you know, you as another sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, refugee from these um, the corporate uh, mining apparatus or, or what have you uh, show up and and like so many others are um, just sort of falling into the the cracks of this society and trying to, to eke out an existence. Um, it's very interesting in that it as we already mentioned there's dice mechanics in play but it's sort of uh, heavily reliant on sort of expository visual novel style narrative so this is almost sort of a survival game meets a visual novel um, and that uh, it it's weirdly a, a game too that sounds on the the tin based on what we've said so far that it should sound really bleak and hopeless but there is actually a lot of hopefulness in this game and weirdly it doesn't feel cheap when it comes uh, for whatever reason the hopefulness in this game is very affecting and very um, soulful I think it it feels earned uh, and not cloying which I think it really resonated with me oh for sure they have excellent writing and characterization in this game like the um you'll meet a lot of different characters doing lots of different things um sleepers the emulated consciousnesses such as yourself are sort of looked down on by Mm. a lot of humans um and you get that very early on um and when you find people who are kind to you and you kind of start learning their stories back then that's a very interesting thing um Another thing about the hopefulness, I said it didn't feel, or or it feels like they earned it. Um, There were not happy endings to every character arc out Mm -hmm. there. Um, And I think that's why they kind of made it feel earned. It wasn't just like a, everything's going to be better now kind of thing now that you're here. Yeah, it, it avoids the sort of Elder Scrolls pitfall of you show up and solve literally everyone's problems. Um, there are some problems you just can't solve in this one. <laughs> you can't oh, you didn't the... get the ending where you overthrow every corporation in the universe? <laughs> no, I didn't become the uh, Archmage of the Mages Guild and the Champion of the Fighters Guild and the Master <laughs> Thief of the Thieves Guild. And uh, a dragon <laughs> somehow? I don't know. <laughs> Depends on what yep, mods didn't... you use, I guess. Yeah, it didn't become a dragon in this one, darn. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think it, it was properly scoped in terms of the problems that you are set up to solve. And, you know, it can strain credulity uh, how many people you are able to interact with in effect. It, you know, it, it, it also sort of makes sense given, like, you are an emulated consciousness, as you mentioned. And I, I think that... Um, in one way, as you mentioned up top, people aren't always initially super thrilled to see you because, um, as you mentioned, you're you're very immediately othered because you're literally living in stolen corporate property. You're a rogue. I think the, the words that were used right in the intro of the game from the first character you meet is you're an emulated consciousness living in a in a stolen in stolen corporate property. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just like it, that sets up the stakes right there. Like you are 
you're you're on the lam basically <laughs> and so there's going to be people who don't like you because you know they're like ooh robots ai uh don't like that humans first kind of thing and then there's going to be people who are suspecting you of maybe being tied somehow to a corporation like mm. bodies don't just get away from snarp the megacorp you escaped from in the beginning and there's a reason for that which i thought was a really cool like i don't know low grade low-key horror kind of thing is that your body is literally disintegrating day by day uh mm. because you don't get the medication that s and arp gives to you when you're working for them slash slaving for them yeah that's a very good point and maybe it's about time we dive into some of the the um more key points of the mechanics here, which you you just um, outlined. Uh, the first one that I think is, is super important and sort of underlines the entire game is um, the condition bar, which, as you said, basically this is your body's ability to accept your consciousness, your ability for your body not to attack itself and destroy itself. Um, and it's uh, basically held in check by a proprietary... Um, chemical that SNARP owns all of the the rights to producing and distributing called the stabilizer. Um, so you need to find stabilizer or you are not going to have a very long stint on um, Erlen's eye. They do an interesting thing with this where the majority of the meaningful actions you take in this game take place through die rolls, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you can start off with five dice and as your condition deteriorates, you lose the maximum number of die you can have each day. So you start off with five, and then a couple days go by, you're down to four, then you're down to three, and you can do less and less each day until you acquire another source of stabilizer. Yeah, it's really elegant in that it, it serves a mechanical function, and that mechanical function ties directly into what it means to the story, which is basically, it's your body's planned obsolescence. Um, which is uh, <laughs> both super dystopian, but also weirdly uh, prescient of how things with technology in our world are um, turning, or at least consumer technology. <laughs> <laughs> to continue on this sort of a line of thought with mechanics the other side of the coin uh, from condition is energy which is basically your body's need for food you know the standard things that you need food and rest and shelter um, and uh, for food generally speaking you need money and to uh, get money you need to do jobs and to do jobs you need to roll dice so let's talk about these dice. <laughs> yeah, this was an interesting thing. So you have an overworld map where you can visit a number of locations, including where you first wake up in the empty storage container where some dude's letting you sleep there um, in his like junkyard and whatnot. Uh, but you can go around the station to these different locations, and when you zoom in on them, there'll be what I'm calling action spaces. Um, at these action spaces, you can spend a die, which you have pre-rolled for yourself between... it's You know, you wake up and you know whether it's a 1 or a 6. Um, so you can spend one of these die, where a 6 is better than a 1, uh, and, you know, 3 is better than 2 and all that. And it has a chance of either having... Um, it, it has a chance of failing to try to do the action, of completing the action, or of doing the action really well depending on how high the die you spend is. Um, which you might end up... Uh, you might come away from this job with some credits. You might come away with um, so a piece of information. Uh, you might increment a progress bar, and when you finish the job, you finish the progress bar, you get some new story, or you get new locations unlocked. Um, it's really like unlocking new things or new currencies. Absolutely. There's a couple things that I want to want to call out for the, the dice. And you mentioned up top that at the beginning of the day, the dice are rolled. And so you already have the rolled dice at your disposal when you're choosing what activities to take on. So in effect, you're choosing where you want to succeed. You know, say you have 
uh, two ones, a two, a five, and a six. You know, you know you're going to succeed on the six. You have a pretty good inkling that you'll be able to succeed on the five, and then those other two. We'll get to what you can do with lower numbers later, but um, generally speaking, they're not going to be um, items you put in in tasks you want to necessarily do great at. Um, however, the game also has this really elegant way of tying that mechanic in with the overall theme and narrative of the game. You know, sometimes succeeding under a capitalist structure like this can often boil down to dumb luck. Um, you know, if you if you do end up, uh, you know, even trying your best, there's still a chance that you'll, you'll fail, right? If you have a five and you put it in, there's still a chance you'll get a neutral outcome. If you have a three, there's a chance you'll do really great or a chance, as you said, Josh, you'll totally biff it. Um, mm-hmm. And this game's uh, coup de gras on all of this is the idea that failure is not necessarily an end state. Or it's not even uh, partially an end state. Failing forward is a feature in this game. Failure is really just a change of the narrative state that you are in. Um, you are often missing out on things you want to be there for because you have to work or your body gives out on you. And you know that's because you, even if you put the right dice in the right place, uh, the roll just didn't work out for you. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's. Uh, it is just so elegantly ties back into the the themes, uh, you know, dice plus capitalism plus uh, precarity equals uh, a really potent mix that's only going to, or that's going to allow you to experience a lot of very interesting interactions with these mechanics. couple i think um mechanically the most brilliant part about the game was the timers that they had um and to before we talk about that first the different action spaces you had access to could have risk levels to them uh they could be safe they could be risky or they could be dangerous and depending on the risk level failure like a negative outcome could mean you lost a dice if it's a safe thing like you just lost the input into there or if it's a dangerous action you can lose condition energy money all the stuff that you kind of need um so there's kind of like you know there's some that there's um some action spaces you really don't want to miss you don't want to biff on you don't want to uh blow those with negative outcomes this is really balanced well against these timers that the game has. Uh, there's ti- these timers tick forward once every day. Um, you know, these are separate from like a progress bar where you complete a job bit by bit. But these are like, there's timers where something's going to happen. A lot of the times it's going to be something good or even neutral. Uh, but there's also bad timers that you're made aware of. Like, you know that there's a bounty hunter who's coming after you in eight turns from now, eight days from now. And what this does very wonderfully is it forces you to perform dangerous actions with lower numbered dice where you have a risk of real failure because like, oh, you're trying to get away from this bounty hunter. You need to remove this tracking chip implanted in your body. And that requires, this quest requires you to go over to here and do this dangerous job. And it's not going to get finished in time if you don't like take some risks and spend some low numbers on that. So I think it really, really drives home that kind of like the precarity, the really trying to risk it, the sense of tension and danger that happens here really gets driven home with that mechanic. Yeah. Another great example of this clock um, and and the ability to sort sort of the building tension is the hunter clock in cyberspace. Um, this game has a really interesting mechanic of of cyberspace where uh, low numbers actually generally can be quite useful because you're not using your dice in cyberspace to perform a task. You're using them to like decrypt a database or hack into something. And basically, they just require a specific number. Uh, so suddenly, you find a very useful uh, place to put all of those ones and twos that you've been dreading to use on salvaging or delivering pizzas or uh, things of that nature. So... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the same time, as you're hacking items in cyberspace, there is a clock ticking up every time you, you hack, uh, for an entity called the hunter who, if they catch you will, uh, immediately cause condition damage to your character. 
uh, and as we mentioned above, condition is uh, something that comes at a premium because you can only restore it with stabilizer, and stabilizer does not come cheap. Um, you can restore energy, you know, your food intake bar, pretty cheaply. But stabilizer is a proprietary drug, so you're you're shelling out a hundred credits a pop compared to like fifteen for a chunk of energy. And that's an interesting thing they do with the action spaces too. Not all of them require dice. Some of them were like put in ten bucks here and get some ramen noodles uh, <laughs> to eat or something like that. Or when you hack things, um, you get data from there, like data from the uh, Stevedores Union, the ha- Havenage, or data from the local Yakuza mob or whatever whatever they were called. <laughs> yeah, um, Yagitri, I think. Yeah, so like uh, you could get data and then you could spend that data unlocking different um, like network access nodes or you could sell that for money too. Um, so not every action requires the use of dice and there's ways to kind of trade these items and currencies against each other. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, we already mentioned cyberspace, but data becomes a very important thing at some point in the story where you're required to gather data by hacking certain areas in the cyberspace uh, layer of the map uh, to either gather intel on certain uh, factions or um, you know, find out things about the overall structure of Erlen's eye and, you know, who's who's truly in charge, so to speak. Um, it's just very, it's interesting. You know, you're using those D6 as, uh, you know, sort of fuel for dialogue trees as you're going. Um, but you're also using the things that you get from other D6 interactions as fuel for dialogue trees as well. <laughs> um, it's, it's really uh, interesting how everything sort of feeds back into each other. And at the end of the day, it's all... Um, in furtherance of telling a story or progressing a certain arc. Um, you know, we've already mentioned there's a lot of great characters in this game, and they all have something that they either need help with or want to help you with. And uh, to my mind, like getting the requisite trust or items or tasks completed to further those goals um, is one of the main mechanical uh, pulls of the game and we haven't even talked about like your character's build or drives that you come up with but maybe this is as good a time as i need to talk about them because drives are kind of the main thing that um you know start to propel you forward Oh, the quest system. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Drives basically function as a simple uh, style of quest system. It is sort of a uh, list of all of the various obligations you've either promised or not promised and just sort of were intuited to need to do. And you start off with one that just says survive. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that's what you have to do. You have to, you know, get some food, you know, work enough to get some money, to get some energy, to keep yourself from starving. And then slowly but surely, you know, that turns into, all right, I need to find some stabilizer. And then after that, you know, you get some additional drives, which is maybe like help your benefactor who put you up in their storage shed uh, when you, you know, uh, woke up in their garage, basically, um, to clear some uh, debt that they have. And then, you know, slowly but surely, it's making friends and saying, all right, well, how about I help them um, come up with a new recipe for their their restaurant or help them get their bar off the ground or help them restore their spaceship so they can get off of this uh, crappy space station that you both seem to be marooned on. You uh, rebuilt the distillery too, didn't you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of interesting threads like that in this game, and they just get more um, interesting and interconnected as you go along. Uh, you know, you find all types of interesting entities, and I think, for my money, one of the most interesting ones is the uh, folks in the, the Greenway, uh, the sort of commune of farmers that uh, have sort of broken off and live in the former food creation portion of Erland's Eye. Um, I don't know why everyone just doesn't go and live with these people. Like, they seem like they have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> and they got the best mushrooms, too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're the only place where you're guaranteed a free meal, as long as you're you're working, pretty much. Um, no, the uh, noodle shop lets you Oh, deliver. you're right, yeah. The noodle but shop yeah. does, too. Yeah. Spending yeah. dice for that, though. That's true, yeah. Um, at the end of the day, though, I think... Uh, there's a lot sort of um, to say with uh, the various locations and characters and scenes and uh, all of them I think are almost universally pretty well done Um, one of my favorites was um, the 
uh, the dock worker and his kid. Uh, I think it's Lem and Mina. Mina, Mina, Lem and Mina. Yeah, um, they had a really affecting story. You know, you basically they uh, Mina immediately befriends you because uh, you know they like robots, <laughs> 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 and um, uh, her father Lem is a dock worker that you are working alongside in the docks, and um, if you choose to do so, and you have this really nice story where you're sort of helping them out and you know you watch Mina while Lem like has to put in an extra shift and then eventually you can try and help them get off of Erlen's eye because Lem has this vision of Mina like not living in this you know metal ruined space space station yeah (laughs) yeah yeah that was a really nice one too I actually didn't finish that story I really like the two characters um but like I remember right before they got the rug pull about their lottery ticket not being worth anything. Like, uh, Mina, Lem was telling you that, like, haha, Mina said she didn't want to leave you. She wanted to stay here with you. And I'm like, oh, man, as a parent, this is not a thread I want to pull on right here. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it really, like, pulls at your heartstrings about how, like, things like that with kids can be really difficult and they don't like fully understand the implications of what they're saying. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like this game does sort of give you an out and, you know, there are endings that have you leaving this, um, this space station, leaving Erlen's eye. And, you know, it could be with any of a a few different characters, half dozen characters that we mentioned so far, or there are of course the the opposite option of you know you stay on the the eye and build a life for yourself there um which is interesting to me that there's not like one way that this has to work out for it to be a good ending you know i ended up staying on the eye uh doing the commune people um i i don't know if you got uh went through that storyline but it was talking to the gardener and rejecting the offer to become like a blooming fungus in the green way. Um, but I also completed the major quest with removing the tracking device too, which is probably a fairly common one. That's like, um, you know, who wants to get tracked by megacorps? Not me. <laughs> no, that does seem like the one thing that kind of just has to happen for this to, <laughs> ah. this to end in a, in a happy way. And so, yeah, the, the ending I got also went down that path. Um, I don't know what happens if you refuse to remove the tracker and, and live out your days, but, um, at any rate, there's there's any uh, I guess there's a lot of options to leave, so maybe it's just one of those uh, continue to be on the run endings. Um, and there are some great characters that you can continue to run away with. You know, you can be uh, a mind forever voyaging, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what endings did you get? Yeah, so I, I played twice through. Um, the first time I ended, I um, did end up just staying on on the eye with uh, Lemon Mina. Um, and the second time, I think I ended up leaving with uh, Ankita. Yeah, Ankita, who has she's a mercenary um, mm-hmm. who owns a, a spaceship that you can restore. Uh, there's kind of like a dark middle portion of that arc where she ends up having to murder a former crewmate who fell in love with uh, another different sleeper. And that was a weird vibe because, like, she murdered a a fellow sleeper. Like, that could have just as easily been you. Um, And I don't think, like, I I wasn't fully role-playing in that moment because I don't think I personally would have continued down that path after seeing (laughs) this person murder in cold blood. But I was like, all right, I need to get off this rock. I need to see what this thing, or what, what this game looks like when you when you actually finally leave and um it was it was interesting uh how about yourself yeah there i did go through that um the merc storyline with ankita mm-hmm. um and yes that that was that i kind of like disassociated with her after that i'm like weird vibes <laughs> now weird vibes that, that was where I was on my first playthrough. I was like, and we're done. <laughs> so my first one, I was like, I'm going to go focus on this uh, nice dude and his kid instead of this bloodthirsty mercenary. <laughs> Which is a really interesting, I'm not going to say bait and switch, but 
and Kita's one of the few characters at the beginning who's like pretty friendly with you and pretty nice to you helping you out and everything asking you she's like hey I need this to I, I'm I'm desperate here I need your help um, so she's like more more likable at the beginning because of that and then this is kind of the turn she takes which is an interesting storytelling uh, narrative kind of path to do tread yeah, I, I think the interesting thing about that, the Ankita ending is it's not just with Ankita, it's with Bliss, too. Did you run into Bliss? The engine mechanic? Yeah. Yeah, I have ran into her, and I started with her uh, storyline, but I didn't finish it. Yeah, so it, you have to progress both Ankita and Bliss's storylines far enough to do that ending. And um, yeah, Bliss is a lot. <laughs> Bliss hmm. is uh, kind of a, an annoying character, at least in, in my book she was just you know she's very enthusiastic um and but things always seem to like break poorly for for her for some reason um but i think you know going or leaving this the station with those two was better than just just having it be ankita you know because as you said the vibes are weird with (laughs) (laughs) weird vibes weird vibes (laughs) I feel like you might kill me. <laughs> One of the things I very much enjoyed about this game was the lore in the world building. Um, you were on the ruined spaceship, but it had like archaeological layers of history and as you're going through the kind of main tracker quest you learn some of these layers how it used to be owned by a corporation as a mining station and they were kind of like uber on steroids where you sign up with them and they like rent you rooms and uh mining equipment but they you know it's a company town uh to the to the next level um but then there's the rebellion against them and there's now other corporations trying to uh, claim turf or move in on this kind of unclaimed space station here who knows mining purposes or whatever um, but you're able to defeat the uh, the evil corporation's effort at taking that over and kind of save the space station there um, but hearing some of the history of you know why it's called Erlen's eye um the kind of idealism that led the revolution and what happened to that afterwards it was very interesting to see yeah that's a really good point you know being a busted up post-revolution space station is much more interesting than just being a space station um and i think that sense of history is really something that you know adds adds a lot of texture to the area i want to ask you more about um the origin of erlen's eye in in a moment but i think i before that i want to mention just quickly that um the the fact that erlen's eye is a place in transition also matches up thematically really well with the the sleeper themselves who is also a person in transition a person learning to be a human consciousness in an artificial body um you know you're a cipher but a cipher with a very specific backstory Um, a a, a very specific and terrifying backstory. Um, You may not have your own body or even possibly your own mind since you you have no idea what's happened to your consciousness in between, you know, it's splintering and where you're at now. But you can experience the relationships with these people that you have. And, And so at the very least, that is real. And I think at the end of the day, like regardless of the history of the space station or the history of your character, um, the factions on the ground or the people on the ground is the one real thing that you have to hold on to. Um, this is uh, probably like the core of the game for me is like, that's what's what you have to, to hold on to. And that's what makes this game tick. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of creating a life amidst the rubble and the wreckage of you know, the space station of human civilization, all that's good stuff. And you, you mentioned cyberpunk up top. Um, you know, I think anytime we're talking about the separation of body and consciousness, see cyberpunk 2077, see um, the TV show Severance uh, for a more recent example. Um, the only reason to have Apple TV Plus, uh, great show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that it's just a really interesting idea. And it's also a really like, 
unsettling idea. And I think it's one of the most, uh, uh, one of the, one of the more effective things that cyberpunk as a genre does is toy with these ideas of bodies and consciousness. The old mind body problem. Well, speaking <laughs> of toying with consciousness, did you go down the hunter killer quest line? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and I was offered the opportunity for that ending in one of my playthroughs where you sort of like become the the station or, or whatnot. And I chose it against that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an interesting thing because you can defeat the hunter that's coming after you uh, if you go on a quest given to you by a literal vending machine. Uh, but this was actually <laughs> one of my favorite characters was Neo Vend. Um, yes. <laughs> what happened was when the station lost corporate control uh there were a couple of a pair of programs on the station a pair of ais the hunter protocol and the killer protocol uh that would detect that they were supposed to kind of like keep other ais and programming in line and keep them from getting too conscious and sentient and like they've cleared out most of the station except over the greenway for reasons you find out later uh, but they didn't get all the AIs out there. There's one that shoved himself into a vending machine, um, which was disconnected from the network, and he was able to hide from the hunter because of that. But he has a fun kind of quest where you go around and take out first the hunter protocol, then the killer protocol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely cool and, and goes really deep into the sort of techno-futurism uh, cyber future aspect of, of the the whole setting, which I really enjoyed. Um, you know, this this actually reminded me of um, another, it reminded me of a book series. Um, have you heard of the Wayfarer series of, of books? Uh, it starts with A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, or the second book, A Closed in Common Orbit. I might have heard the title of the first one, but I've not read them. Yeah, it's a series by an author called Becky Chambers, uh, that she is great. The The first book, A uh, Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, is fantastic. The second book, um, I, I liked it a little less, but it's still very interesting. It's called A Closed in Common Orbit, as I said, and it deals actually with this exact thing, with an AI implanting itself into or being implanted into an android body and like what the implications for that are in a society that like um, does not approve of such things. Um, huh. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. And uh, at least those two books in the series are, are quite good. I haven't read any further than, than that, but I would recommend them. Oh, pretty recent, too. Uh, Small Angry Planet was 2014. I'll, I'll take a look. Yeah, they're super fast reads, too. Like, I think I did uh, a close and common orbit, or, uh, sorry, a small, a long way to a small angry planet in, like, a weekend. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, very, very, uh, very uh, engrossing and, and quick books to read through. Um, but yeah, check them out. I think they're they're real fun. Um, there's one one thread that I did not end up pulling on during my playthrough, despite the fact that I had access to it. Was any of the DLC? Um, there were three DLCs that came out during the course of um, this game's uh, last several months: uh, Flux, Refuge, and Purge, and they basically deal. Uh, with sort of a mid to late game arc where um, additional refugees start arriving uh, on the eye and they're sort of trapped in limbo and your how you deal with them sort of progresses throughout those DLCs as I understand it. So um, I'm I'm personally not able to touch on those unfortunately as of this recording, but maybe maybe in a future revisit I'll I'll play through those. Uh, did you happen to hit those, Josh? No, it. There were a couple of things. I think first. Oddly enough, there was a warning when you went to this uh, location that this was a DLC meant for the mid-to-end game, and I wasn't sure when I would hit that, so I never tried to start <laughs> doing that. Um, and the You're second, like, I thing, don't know when that late game is. <laughs> <laughs> am I close to the end? I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, that's the thing about this game is you don't. You never know. Like you could, it could be right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the other thing was. Um, after I disabled the tracking device, there was there was no longer a bad timer hanging over me, and I felt this kind of ruined the pacing or the tension of the game for me. There was no longer any reason I couldn't just farm out all the resources I needed by doing a job day after day and not having to worry about, like, 
something's coming on my back. I need to be smart about what I'm doing with things. Mm. Um, I felt like once that tracking device was removed, like my, my time to continue playing the game was more based on like narrative inertia of like wanting to see it out until the end of the game until the credits. Cause I felt like it lost its pace. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, Personally, by the time I had removed that tracker, I was already so far down what would eventually end up being my ending arc that it didn't really hang over me long enough to 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 engender that feeling in me. But I, I totally understand where you could get that. Like at, at some point, as long as you are nominally coming out in the black on whatever you are doing in a given cycle, there's no reason you couldn't just continue that in perpetuity in between or and become like um, the Bill Gates of Erland's eye or whatever, <laughs> you know? Deliver um, a lot of noodles. You can just deliver <laughs> noodles all day long. That's right. When you're a immortal AI and you have a uh, supply apparently to an infinite amount of uh, stabilizer, there's no reason you can't pull yourself up by your infinite bootstraps and become the uh, station's richest individual. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it does kind of fall apart at that level, but that is such a reach, like... Who's doing that? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't for for um, obvious reasons. <laughs> I think for me, I finished the tracking quest, and it wasn't immediately clear what I was supposed to do next in order to advance to an ending, because I already decided I didn't want to finish the Lem and Mina one, because I'm like, I've decided I want to stay on the station. You know, this whole thing about sneaking around to find the secret way on the colony ship. It, it's not for me. I'm just going to keep on going here. So I started doing some other quest lines, started going down the Bliss one a little bit. Um, but just, you know, there wasn't any urgency to anything I was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And, you know, that, that can kind of deflate. Like, it's always nice when a game, like, ratchets up the tension and propels you to a compelling ending. Um, and when a game sort of whiffs on that, uh, as it sounds like the circumstances may have conspired to put you in a situation where that happens, like that is a bummer. So I, I totally understand that. Oh, um, and all the mushroom farming you have to do for the Greenway ending. Insane. <laughs> insane. I was just waiting around. I'm like, okay, what other quest can I do? I guess. <laughs> Time to deliver more noodles. <laughs> how, about another, how about another game of cards with the guys over at the teapot? Or the, the tea kettle. <laughs> Wait, I have 500 credits now? Oh, man. <laughs> Rolling in it. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. That is a little weird. Um, somehow, I've only been here a month, and I have three houses. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are some... I think the game works a lot better the tighter you can keep it in terms of like finding your ending and seeing it through. Um, and the more endings you turn down, I think the, the less compelling the loop continues to get. Um, but you know, I mean, if you're not getting an ending you want to see, I do like that the game allows you an off ramp to keep going. Right. Mm -hmm. No, no. I think, um, I was getting a feeling that the tracking device quest would be an ending. So that's where I was devoting my energies. And then mm -hmm. I finished it and it was not an ending. It was just kind of like, and you're still here. So <laughs> I think that was for me, the kind of like, oh, well, that was a really great story. <laughs> All right, yeah, let's figure out a way to do this. Yeah, and then there was one I didn't want to do with the colony ship again. So that was what I had start gotten significantly farther on the line already. So you were kind of casting about at that point. Mm-hmm. Casting yeah. about without a, I don't know, any like um, urgency Compelling, behind it. Yeah. Right, casting about it with no with no compelling hooks to continue to drive you, and no um, nothing urging you forward. Yeah, I I, I think you may have fallen through the cracks uh, in this uh, capitalist dystopian <laughs> hellscape, Josh. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> you're you're doomed to just be a rich android. <laughs> <laughs> One, one thing that um, uh, may aid in your ceaseless wanderings throughout the, the space station are two things. Uh, one, this game's fantastic art. Um, I think the character designs and art are par excellence. Like, they are gorgeous, extremely detailed, and convey pretty much everything at a glance you need to know about a character. Uh, I thought these were just excellent. 
mm-hmm. and two, the soundtrack by Amos Roddy, which is just a really chill sort of electronica, more of a soundscape than a than a soundtrack, so to speak. It's just uh, perfectly sets the mood and tone um, of the game. I want to add on to the art point. The UI of this game is so fantastic. It's almost like a case study in how to make something dynamic, how to make things stand out. Like the important bits are easy to find. Um, Not once in this game was I confused about how to do things. And that's, uh, you know, this, this game was coming up with pretty much new video game mechanics. This was something like... I just knew how to play a first-person shooter because I've played five dozen before, you know? Um, And not once did the UI fail me here. Yeah, I do like um, how how easily readable it was and also how um, dynamic it was, despite the fact that you're just basically working in text and screen effects and some, you know, a relatively small amount of art for how broad the tapestry that this game is painting is. um, It's really incredible how how well they can convey like a mood and a tone and or even like a sense of action like there's all these sort of screen flash effects that happen when like um very like say your character gets hit or something like the screen will flash white as you or you eat the mushrooms right yeah and you you feel the rejuvenating effects of the mushrooms (laughs) um but yeah i think i think they the ui did just do an excellent job of conveying that sort of thing um I, I, Garrett Damien Martin, in that interview that I was talking about at the top um, with, with Austin Walker, they mentioned that um, they would never not want to work in a system like this again because it allows for such a broad um, conceptual arena to work in where you don't have to do any sort of like animation. Like they can have a gunfight using these mechanics. They can have uh, running a restaurant using these mechanics. They can have a relationship simulator with these mechanics. Um and if you were working in like a fully realized 3D space, all of those would require a shit ton of art and assets and rigging and blah, blah, blah. And I think as a framework for telling stories, you can't do much better than this, right? Yeah, definitely. It can invest in very quality character designs and, and uh, character designs and artwork because there's not like, we need this character from eight different viewing angles and Mm -hmm. we need a six frame animation walking animation for all those viewing angles no it's just (laughs) it's the one Uh, that's all you got that's all you need that's right and yet you still can tell like for my money a more compelling and fully fleshed out narrative than almost any other game in the year of our lord 2022 so kudos to garrett damian martin for that um a real like feat of narrative design here. And with that, let's summarize our time on Erlen's Eye with a three-word review. My three-word review for Citizen Sleeper is paycheck to paycheck. Citizen Sleeper sets out to tell a story in a dystopian future where megacorps own the literal bodies of their quote-unquote employees and keep them subservient because the alternative is death. Even against these odds, our protagonist concocts an escape plan. It works, but just barely. And with this, the game begins. You awaken on a space station at the distant edges of civilization, far enough away to generally escape the notice of the powerful. No one here is trying to overthrow the system, though. Everyone is just trying to survive and get by. You quickly join the working masses in trying to secure enough chits to get through the week. I don't mean my three words to indict the game as a all the fun of working a regular job. Instead, I mean to highlight how impressed I was with the small scale and scope of the game's storytelling. This game told the personal stories of characters who aren't and can't be the hero foretold by the prophecy. Instead, the characters try to find themselves small packets of comfort, whether that's the hope of a lottery ticket to a new colony or just a few freshly picked mushrooms. The focus on these tiny stories was the highlight of the game for me and one I hope to see other games consider. Mm -hmm. Agreed. My three-word review is precarity, personality, positivity. 
For me, Citizen Sleeper's biggest strength is its ability to inextricably tie its emotional and narrative core to its core gameplay mechanics. The dice act as an excellent metaphor for a character who is trying to exist in a precarious situation with limited physical and emotional bandwidth. At the outset, the game asks you to simply survive, and for a while, that is all you're capable of, if you're lucky. And while you eventually eke out a routine, you're never fully comfortable. Another developer would have looked at this cyberpunk dystopian setting and filled it to the brim with intergang conflicts, fascist overlords, and sinister mercenaries. Citizen Sleeper has some of those archetypes, but instead fills it with possible friends and comrades, the seeds of a community. I heard the developers say in an interview that In Other Waters gave them the space to make a game they've always wanted to make, a game about being there for people and them being there for you. In my opinion, Citizen Sleeper's potent blend of precarity, personality, and positivity earns it a position among the likes of Disco Elysium, Kentucky Route Zero, and Norco in terms of excellence in narrative gameplay design. Roll the dice, embrace your community, but above all, play this game. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. If you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on surviving. It's really interesting. I wrote that three-word review beforehand, and we like served up that podcast perfectly for that. Like so many of those themes, we touched on already, and it wasn't something in the outline or anything. It was just a uh, very naturally we converged on the same ideas about this game. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a game that I don't think I think it's. I would love to say that that's us, <laughs> that we just totally intuited exactly how we wanted to speak about this exact work. But I think everything in this game is just pulling so um, nonstop in the direction of its underlying themes and, and core like tenets that it was almost impossible for us not to end up at that location if we were giving it any critical eye whatsoever, right? Like This is a game that's just so fully focused on an idea and executes on it to a razor's edge. I agree with that, and maybe that's something I didn't realize as strongly, but I remember I wrote this three-word earlier today, and I'm like, this is a little out in left field, and then surprise, <laughs> we're setting up a picnic lunch in left field. Yeah, no, no exactly. I, you know, it's it's funny, like, I, you just kind of have to, like, listen to, like, what your subconscious is telling you about this game while you're playing it, and you will find the answers to what it, what it is, like, um what it is going for you know because like there's this feeling in the back of your head the entire time you're playing like it's the same feeling like that you have when you know you need to make rent or you know you need to make sure you have your ability or you're able to pay off your credit card or um you know uh pay any sort of bill i guess medical bills would be a good example (laughs) Mm -hmm. um it's just one of those games that like it speaks to a lot about um how we have to exist in our current society Um, There's always an obligation. Um, There's always a feeling of precarity, no matter how secure you are. And maybe that's just like neuroses speaking or the fact that we are people with a lot of obligations. You know, we both have families. We both have full-time jobs. We both have, you know, um, a lot of things that are um, being asked of us. But at the same time, like as you said, you you came at it from an entirely different direction than I did. (laughs) And we both ended up at the same place. It's a sign of a good game, or one worth playing for the conversation. Absolutely. Um, I would recommend it to someone, even a person who doesn't have a gaming podcast. One of the things I think this game did so well was using the mechanics to reinforce the theme, uh, both in two ways, both for yourself with, you know, like you're, you don't have the stabilizer drug, 
that keeps your body from disintegrating so you have less actions to spend each day. And man, let me tell you, the difference between having five and three actions... Did you ever get down to two actions? I never did. Oh, no, no. I would I would get some stabilizer as soon as I got down to four. Um. Yeah, no, the, uh, <laughs> there was a perk you could get for the endurance stat where it was like, even if you're in critical condition, you still have two dice each day. And I'm like... I don't want to get that far. I was going to say, God help me if I'm down to <laughs> to, to, to one um, one stability um, line. That would be, ugh, yeah. That'd be rough. I, I often wondered about this. Like, I feel like it's very hard to lose this game. Um, I don't even know if it's possible. Um, but I, you know, like, like you said, I, I never got down below three and three was like, that's where you start like the game basically uses having three dice and low stability as your tutorial and then once i got back up to five every time i dropped below five i would stabilize back up so to speak Mm -hmm. i just don't think this is a game that's really interesting or interested in like doling out harsh mechanical punishment so much as it's interested in building as you said that feeling of tension and uh that feeling of being overly obligated with limited bandwidth and that is perfectly able to be done without, you know, or with or without your um, stability ever dipping below, you know, four or whatever. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're the type of person who doesn't want your stability going below four, you feel the tension at four where somebody else might feel it at two. That's true. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, some people are just used to operating on, uh, on I don't know, a, a lower checking account, for, for example. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they have um, your you the player have these mechanical kind of things emphasizing the precarity, um, but then all the characters you meet are kind of in some ways, uh, I don't want to say like victims of the future dystopia, although I guess they are, but they're like living within that future dystopia, and they've had those things happen to it like the mushroom cook who was my best friend throughout the game um he was like uh trained from childhood to operate these mining mechs um until the corporate he was about to graduate in from i don't know mech school and the corporation's like you know these aren't cost effective anymore because people die too often from these and weird accidents so we're just going to cancel everything and this guy's had, like, implants going up and darn down his spinal cord in order to interface with these mechs more directly. And he's like, well, so I guess I'm cooking food on a distant ruined space station now. Um, so it's like the mechanics emphasize the point for you, but then the dialogues you have with just about every character you meet emphasize the theme and kind of flesh it out, give flavor to it. Yeah, no, that, that's that's an excellent point. Like any one of the stories of, of any of these characters is so like well fleshed out and uh, well realized. It's just it, it really goes to show that Gareth Damian Martin just had incredibly empathetic writing as he was creating all of these characters. Like they really seem to uh, have inhabited the characters that they were creating. It's not something that you see in, in every game like often you'll you'll have like a, a surface level story like that and you will have an, an inkling for how that character would respond to it and for what it's worth i don't think becoming a mushroom cook very chill dude is the way that i necessarily would have thought that character's arc would have gone knowing that backstory which for the <laughs> record i i had never heard before right now but it does kind of make sense <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's a very good, very good game for that. The different characterizations they throw at you, but it's all in service to the theme of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I couldn't really ask for more in terms of uh, a creator that's willing to explore the really deep parts of these characters' mind spaces. Um, a lot of care was put into that, and. Um, I guess the ability to like fully inhabit someone like that is uh, it's a rare talent. It's certainly not something that, that I would do. And it's something that clearly would take a lot of practice at, at writing. So 
So the one thing that I noticed about this game is that um, as in most role-playing games, you know, you usually expect to have the ability to say, choose a side. But in Citizen Sleeper, there's no option to side with the fascists. Uh, you're not teaming up with Hardin of the Havenage or um, becoming a corporate, a true corporate asset for S and ARP. Um, there's no Joja Mart option a la Stardew Valley in this game, right? Like you are, you are truly a uh, sleeper of the people. Um, and I just, I wonder what you thought about, like, that sort of, uh, red, you know, uh, fencing off of uh, a certain mode of play. Because this is a role-playing game at its core, you know, and you're you're inhabiting this character. Are we saying that this character has sort of that, that hard line drawn or that the society has that hard line drawn, that that would never possibly happen? Or are we saying that that's just not the message this game is trying to convey? Because I'm inclined to think the latter. I'd think the latter myself, but if I had to explain this in the in-game universe, you are an emulated consciousness. You are somebody else's consciousness. And that that person, that original person, might have been like, I would not join the corporations who are trying to hunt me down for moral <laughs> reasons, for revenge reasons, for whatever. And I find it totally... Like, there's a valid in-universe explanation of why you can't choose that thing that's right uh all corporations are bastards uh i <laughs> totally support my my sleeper um my sleeper comrade here it makes sense uh, if you're thinking about it diegetically but it also just makes for a better story so i think that's where i land too but i just uh, i wanted to throw that out there and get your thoughts because uh, it is interesting to me that that was just not even on the table in this game, and I think it's better for it. As opposed to what Citizen Sleeper did, if it did have an option to like go evil, so to speak, <laughs> does that add a lot to the moral weight and heft of the game? Like I'm thinking back to the the classic example for me for this is Fable. Hmm. where you're a good character or a bad character and you're good or bad enough that you have like angelic halos over you or, or you demon have horns, yeah. demon <laughs> horns um and it's like the way you're evil is you choose all the evil options like it's you're the good option or the evil option and it's not like what's what's your morality or what's your uh reasons for choosing this or kind of like the reasoning you're going through it's just like good or bad like mm. I don't necessarily see how Citizen Sleeper could have well there's not there's nothing that simplistic in this game right like I, I would yeah, think of it more exactly. as like siding with the siding with the self-interested faction rather than siding you know uh, siding with people who are uh, I guess, so to say, not in positions of power. Um, there is a version of this game where the opportunity to side with people in a position of power presents itself to you and you take it. And that's not as like black and white as you murder a dude and you get demon horns on your head. <laughs> and then you kick his puppy. <laughs> right. But that never happened in this game. And to your point, and I think maybe maybe you are, you are on the right path here, I think maybe if that option did exist, it would just simply serve to undercut the message of this game in general. And so what's the point of having it? This game was a very thematic game. Like, we've talked about... I, I feel like games have this kind of, like, triad, this triangle of mechanics, narrative, and theme. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's the pixelated playgrounds triangle, right? <laughs> the patented triangle you know in fact maybe all triangles are patented now by us we can get in on this capitalist bullshit That's um, right. <laughs> come at us Zelda we got your Triforce <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like the lens with which we look through games is definitely viewing that triangle and this was a game that leans heavily towards the thematic one like the mechanics and the narrative both support the thematic point of the game mm -hmm. no i definitely agree with you there and um it, this comes to the sort of 
phrase I keep using, which is everything's pulling in the same direction. Like, yes, this game has very great streamlined mechanics. Um, yes, it has um, excellent uh, narrative that tells a compelling story and teaches certain lessons and conveys certain ideas. And then the theme ties both of those things together and amplifies them. Um, so I guess all I can say is I fully agree with you. And uh, it is the, the, the Triforce of excellent uh, game design right there. The, the patented pixelated playgrounds triangle. <laughs> <laughs>